Hello, and welcome to Based on a True Story, the podcast that compares your favorite Hollywood movies with history. Today, we're going to be looking at the classic sci-fi series, The X-Files. Created by Chris Carter, The X-Files ran for 11 seasons and 217 episodes spread from 1993 to 2018, and it's considered by many to be one of the most popular science fiction TV series of all time, and it's inspired countless others. The storyline throughout the series follows two FBI agents, Mulder and Scully, who come across a lot of unknown and paranormal things as they seek to uncover the truth, or as the show's tagline says, the truth is out there. And while they're searching for the truth in the TV show, obviously not everything in the X-Files is based on a true story, but it's also not all entirely fiction either. Many of the especially UFO-related episodes that we see in the X-Files were actually inspired by real events and stories. So that's what we'll be focusing on in this episode. To help us separate fact from fiction, we'll be chatting with UFO researcher Rob Christofferson, who is the host of one of my favorite podcasts, Our Strange Skies. Before we chat with Rob, it's time to set up our game, Two Truths and a Lie. If you're new to the show, here's how it works. I'm about to say three things. Two of them are true, and that means one is an all-out lie. Are you ready? Okay, here they are. Number one. The idea of Area 51 being a top-secret base came from the X-Files TV show. Number two, there are real reports of commercial airliners encountering UFOs like we see in the X-Files. Number three, the U.S. government took a few days to respond to the famous Roswell crash of 1947. Got him? Okay, now as you're listening to our story today, your challenge is to find the two facts scattered somewhere throughout the episode. And of course, we'll do a recap at the end of the episode to see how well you did. All right, now it's time to connect with Rob Christofferson about the true stories in The X-Files. We'll get into some of the specifics of the X-Files and UFOs here in a bit. But before we do that, just take a step back, look at the X-Files overall. How do you think it's impacted the general public's knowledge about the UFO phenomena? I think what it's done and what it's done like really well is taken the UFO paranoia that was really prevalent in the 1980s. Uh, and kind of projected it into a wider audience. So uh, when we roll into the 80s, when you, when you take a look back at 80s ufology, it is, it's not looked at as a high watermark for uh, UFO study in general because uh, you know later in the decade, it was revealed that there were elements of disinformation uh, introduced into the community through a guy named Richard Doty, who was the primary um, kind of like the antagonist of 80s ufology. He was a member of the Air Force Office of Special Investigations, and he had um, he had been given this kind of special assignment to um, there was a guy named Paul Benowitz who lived 
like right across the street from Kirtland Air Force Base. And he had uh, he had had this interest in UFOs. He was uh, big into cattle mutilations and, and, and that kind of stuff. And he started noticing these lights over Kirtland Air Force Base. And he believed that it was aliens and that there were alien battles happening on Kirtland Air Force Base. So Richard Doty is given this assignment that they're not going to tell him, no, that's not what's going on. They're going to kind of fuel the paranoia for him and make him seem like, yes, there is an alien battle going on here. But what their ultimate goal was is to draw his attention away from Kirtland because they did have some secret technology that they were testing. So they shift his focus to uh, Dulce Base. Uh, it's in New Mexico. It's kind of taken on this um, this lore of being a place where an underground alien base is because they literally dress that place up to make it seem like there's an underground alien base out there. So Richard Doty kind of gets on, he gets on Paul Benowitz here and he kind of shifts things around. But what he also does is he hooks up with a guy, a UFO researcher named Bill Moore and they agree to kind of introduce a lot of disinformation into the UFO community. In exchange, he was going to give Bill Moore actual real information. And in 1989 at the MUFON Symposium, it was in Las Vegas, he comes out and he gives this, I think it was like an hour-long thing, this hour-long presentation about how he, the role that he played in all of this and what Richard Doty did and all of that. And it kind of cast this shadow on the, the UFO topic for those that were studying in the community. Bill Moore, he never researched it ever again. He was kind of a laughingstock after that. So when we look at 80s ufology on top of that, that 80s is when Roswell comes into prominence, it, it starts to gather this big reputation, and then it culminates in 1989 when there is an episode of Unsolved Mysteries, a segment dedicated to Roswell. And it becomes so popular that uh, a few months later, I think they aired it in like uh, November of 89. A few months later, in January 1990, they re-air it, and it has more viewers. So... We have that. We have alien abductions becoming very more prominent, especially around 1987. You start to see them appear more in pop culture. So in reality, you know, X-Files is based on all of these things. And what it did really well is just kind of push that narrative out into a wider public to the point where it, like, I, it did affect a lot of people that were really interested in the subject and it kind of became the de facto face of what UFO research and UFOs uh, you know, what the interest in the topic actually looked like to the point where, you know, uh, people are talking like alien abductions became a mainstream thing. And before that alien abductions had kind of been a thing from like the mid sixties uh, up until that time in the eighties when it just like really gets out there. So the X-Files did a great job of really amplifying the most paranoid aspects and kind of the worst aspects of the UFO uh, topic. 
so kind of picking, uh, pull, pulling different pieces from other other places and and creating a narrative around that. Yes, to, if, if I'm understanding what you're saying, absolutely. Basically, is kind of what they did a good job of doing. A- yeah. Absolutely, and okay. I mean, um, there are there are the definite things that I that I didn't mention, like Bob Lazar. Bob Lazar was uh, again 1989. It seems to be this year, this culminating year of all this paranoid stuff. <laughs> uh, his story starts to come out. That's when the Area 51 stuff starts to come to prominence. So it, it definitely amplified mm. those paranoid aspects of it. In the, I want to add in the um, second episode of the of the first season. Uh, we're introduced to the character of Deep Throat in, in the X-Files, and we get the idea of uh, there's a cover-up even within the government itself. Uh, Mulder and Scully, they're FBI agents, but they're not getting access to everything themselves. And so, uh, at least when we're watching the show, we kind of get the sense that we're on their side, even though they're still part of the government, they're not getting the whole information. So they have difficulty finding the truth in their investigations. It kind of makes me think of some of the government's real investigations. I know um, I've talked to you about before in the, in the past, you know, Project Sign, Project Grudge, Project Blue Book. Do we know if those government investigations into UFOs had the same sort of challenges that we see Mulder and Scully encountering in the show where they even have trouble finding the truth themselves, even though they are FBI agents? Back in the 50s, right at the start of project blue book in 1952 it's at the start it's slated to be this really objective study of ufos the ufo phenomenon uh and the people that were running it up um a a, uh, edward ruppelt who was the head of the project dr j allen hynek was brought in by Edward Ruppelt because he had worked on Project Sign and uh, he had actually criticized him for um, some of the determinations that he came to when it uh, when in in certain cases where he was saying oh well the determination was that this witness was seeing Venus and and stuff like that and so he brings him in and it's set to be this objective study and then in July of that year. Uh, two consecutive weekends, there are these two big sighting events in Washington, D.C. Um, and they're talking about, you know, objects appearing over the Capitol and being chased by jets when, um, you know, jets are scrambled. They can't keep up with them. And it's like following that incident that Project Blue Book comes under scrutiny. Um, not only that, you know, in pop culture, you have Life magazine printing articles speculating about, you know, alien life and stuff like that. Um, and, and, and these incidents just like had such a the, – the government and specifically the CIA took a look at that and said, um, we're going to come in. We're going to do uh, – we're going to – we have a panel. We're going to take a look at your UFO cases and then – Essentially, what they ultimately decide is that, well, your objective needs to change. And I always found that interesting. I was like, why is the CIA coming in to tell the Air Force what to do? Like, it, it doesn't make sense. But that's mm-hmm. essentially what the Robertson panel was in 1953. There's a panel of uh, a few guys that came in. They looked at, uh, I don't know if they looked at every single case that they had amassed up until that point, but. Uh, they looked at uh, new cases that had come in. There was some even video footage uh, that uh, 
come through the Project Blue Book desk and they looked at that and said, well, uh, you're going to have to change the scope of your project. You're going to have to come out, dismiss a lot of these cases because we're in the middle of the Cold War. We don't want a public that is um, uh, untrusting or is, um, you know, paranoid of, uh, you know, what's going on out in the world. So the CIA comes in and says, you're going to have to change the nature of your project. So, from 1952 up until I would say largely 1965, that's when they just kind of downplay everything. And you, you don't have a lot of major cases from that time period. The only major case that would come out is um, the case of Lonnie Zamora, the Socorro, New Mexico um, police officer who had uh, seen a UFO landed in an arroyo in New Mexico and had gotten close to the thing. He was a trustworthy witness. And that that's kind of seemed to be a turning point. And then in 1965, a lot of people, including the press, kind of started to turn their back on the uh, government and their determinations on things. Um, what's interesting about 1952 is that when you look at uh, the total number of cases that Project Blue Book did uh, or, or analyzed and, and investigated and stuff. Um, there were only 701 cases that were labeled as unidentified. In 1952, that, that year had the most uh, amount of unidentified cases ever, uh, 303, which is an ungodly number when you look at every other year that uh, Project Blue Book was in operation. There were 303 reports of unidentified objects that they could not come up with an explanation to. So it's really not surprising when, um, you know, somebody steps in and says, eh, you're going to have to change this. This is a lot. There shouldn't be that much happening in our skies. So, um, yeah, there there has definitely been, you know, cases where that has happened. Um but uh, yeah, like, uh, and I think what's interesting there too is that the I think the main impetus for why the, the CIA came in was that um, Edward Rupert was brought in front of President Eisenhower, and Eisenhower wanted to know what was going on, and he had no clue because he had just uh, this was like maybe days, uh, maybe a day or two after these sightings had occurred in '52, and. He didn't have time to investigate it. So, you know, he's brought in front of the president. President wants to know what the heck is going on. And he um, he didn't have an answer for him. So it, it kind of became this, you know, thing where they wanted to lock things down. And um, yeah, so there there is definitely and you, you also do see that kind of in a little bit in. Uh, you know, Paul Benowitz again and, and stuff, but uh, like the government influencing civilians, even in that case. So um, yeah, there are definitely cases in which that did happen. Hmm. Something as, as I was rewatching the X-Files, it's something kind of get the sense that a lot of people refer to 
the government as you know this this single organization that's orchestrating some of these cover-ups um it's kind of you know the government versus the public which was kind of which is interesting that you know i i got the impression when i was watching the x-files even though as i just mentioned you know, obviously Mulder and scully are they're part of the government so it it's the show does a really good job of, of having this, this contrast there. Uh, do you think that's still the case where it's kind of the government versus the people for these cover-ups? Yeah, oh, yeah. Even to this day, um, uh, <laughs> movements around disclosure are literally people yelling on the internet at the, the government, telling them to release everything that they have, tell us everything that they know about you know UFOs, aliens, all this kind of stuff. And it's kind of funny because like, they probably don't really have anything like if they do, they've released it all uh, to a certain extent, you know, uh, and there are people that say, well, you know, not every single project blue book file has been released and, and stuff like that. But uh, yeah, this is not a lot has changed since the X-Files has come out. It is literally people (laughs) claiming that the government is just hiding everything. So disclosure now, and people are still saying disclosure as if it's, they're not happy with the answer they're getting. So obviously no. they, there must be, it, they must be hiding it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, um, and uh, like now is interesting because there are like many of the uh, branches of the military and stuff. They are like investigating UFOs. They've come out and said, we've got our own, you know, task forces that uh, look into the stuff. So it's only fuel to the fire, but yeah, it's still disclosure all day long. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, going back to the X-Files and uh, still in season one and episode 10, we get an indication for how the government might respond to a UFO crash in the show. It happens just outside uh, towns in Wisconsin. Uh, it is a real town. And then Mulder finds out there's this incident. Deep Throat tells him something about Operation Falcon that's gone into effect. He says within 24 hours, the entire area is going to be sanitized and it'll be like nothing ever happened. Uh, later in the episode, Mulder and Scully talked to the widow of a local deputy who died at the scene, and she said she can't afford to tell the truth because they told her if she says anything, then they'd withhold her deceased husband's pension. So they're make, basically making her not say anything. Uh, based on the reports that you've come across in your research, how realistic do you think The X-Files was and how it depicted a government response to a crashed UFO? There are a lot of interesting things that you read from people who say I was on a team that went out and retrieved, you know, downed UFOs and stuff like that. There was a guy named Clifford stone. And what was interesting about Clifford stone is if you ever watched him talk, he would get very emotional about the, the, um, the retrievals that he went on. And like, cause he, he would talk about like interacting with aliens and feeling their emotions and stuff like that. Very emotional man. Um, but there, there are a lot of similarities to, uh, certain, uh, crash retrieval cases as they call them. Uh, Roswell comes to mind in, in a lot of cases because, uh, a lot of witnesses to Roswell that came forward, uh, in the uh, 80s, 90s, up until now, they often talked about how the government would, you know, silence them and, and, and such. And uh, you see a lot of that kind of uh, stuff where people visit the areas today. They find them like really, you know, uh, combed over and, and uh, 
the like areas that are raked and stuff like that. One of the best examples of this is uh, an incident called the Kecksburg incident. Uh, it occurred in Kecksburg, Pennsylvania in 1965 uh, in December. And what's interesting about this case is that there were numerous eyewitnesses from Canada, Michigan, Ohio, uh, and, and a few other states in the area that saw this streaking object in the sky like before 5 p.m. Hmm. And what was interesting is that uh, there, there was a group of people that saw this object make like a specific right-hand turn. And in the town of Kecksburg, this object comes out of the sky, crashes into the woods. People are believing it's a meteor or, or something like that, but... Um, the uh, local fire department, local police department, a lot of uh, citizens respond to the area. They, you know, because it, it actually spread out on the radio really quickly that, oh, there was something that, you know, crashed in the woods. Uh, and the fire and police department get there. They actually get into the woods and actually see what this object is. And they describe it as an acorn shaped object. And one eyewitness, a guy named Jim Romanski, said that on the bottom of this object, there was this band. And on this band, there was this like kind of weird writing that he related to Egyptian hieroglyphs. And before long, the military comes in. They coordinate off. Everybody is not allowed uh, within that area. They confiscate, I think, one reporter's camera and such. And they hush everything up. And like nobody really talked about this incident for probably um, 30 years or so, 20, 30 years. Uh, it, it was actually featured on Unsolved Mysteries in, um, I think, the early 90s. But um, there, there, are very, there are a lot of similarities in the cases that you read of, you know, military coming in, making as quick a job as they can of it, just removing any trace from the area that anything had happened and silencing witnesses. So um, yeah, there are, there are quite a few cases like that. Uh, One of the most recent was actually uh, in 2008 in California. And uh, it was um, uh, a place called needles, California and a bunch of people had witnessed a a UFO uh, crash into this riverbank. And there were a bunch of eyewitnesses, including a uh, a guy in a boat that claimed that the government came in, they lifted this object off the uh, riverbank, put it on like a flatbed truck and transported it out of there. So um, yeah, there's, a, there's definitely a lot of similarities here with uh, what you see in that particular episode of uh, the X-Files. Hmm. I'm sure it's no surprise that I believe we can learn from history. And that includes my own personal history, too. You know how your phone will remind you of photos that you took on this day a few years ago? Well, I just had one pop up, and it reminded me of a time a few years ago when my daughter and I were heading out on a four-hour drive to a state park. And it couldn't have been more like 10 minutes into the drive when my check engine light turned on and my car just started shaking really, really bad. Needless to say, we ended up spending the rest of the day at the mechanic instead of the park. Not only was that day ruined, but all of a sudden, I had a huge, unexpected bill to figure out how to pay. And I really wish I had known about today's sponsor then, because that would have relieved a lot of stress. 
Earn In helps alleviate financial anxiety by giving you access to your pay as you work instead of waiting for the next paycheck. You can get up to $100 a day or up to $750 per pay period. Download Earn In today, spelled E-A-R-N-I-N, in the Google Play or Apple App Store. When you download the Earn In app, type in True Story under podcast when you sign up, and it'll really help the show. True Story under podcast. Earn In is a financial technology company, not a bank, subject to your available earnings, daily max, pay period max, and location. See earnin.com slash TOS for details. Bank products are issued by Evolve Bank and Trust, member FDIC. Thanks, Earn In. You were talking earlier about disclosure, and as I was rewatching the S-Files for our chat, the final episode of season one kind of left me with a question. In that episode, Mulder and Scully seem closer than ever to uncovering the evidence that they need to prove everything they've investigated so far. Again, it's the, the season finale of the first season. And it's a common theme that we see throughout the entire series, though. It always seems like they get evidence, but none of it can really prove anything. They're always on the cusp of being able to reveal the truth for the whole world to see, but the truth is out there, right? It's, they still can't actually prove anything. It made me want to ask about the that uh, impact on the whole notion of disclosure like you were talking about before, that being some sort of a, a magic pill that once for all is going to reveal the truth for everybody. Do you think the X-Files played a part in this idea of government disclosure being the one-size-fits-all answer to UFO phenomena? I think so, absolutely. Like uh, Before the X-Files and, and kind of you started to see in the UFO community this kind of shift between from, you know, yeah, there is a government cover-up, but it just seems to be for the public's benefit uh, to, you know, just kind of cut down on the paranoia of everything. And it starts to shift in the late 70s and into the 80s. Uh, in the 80s, there was a uh, group of documents. This was all connected to Richard Doty and Bill Moore called the Majestic 12 documents. And these were uh, a series of memos that um, was, that established a group within the government that was supposed to be responsible for kind of covering up UFOs, retrieving UFOs and stuff like that. And it's kind of, it's pretty much been, uh, disproven at this point like there is no real evidence like if you go on the uh, FBI's website and you search for MJ12 it has these great pictures of all of these memos and it has the words bogus written all over them it's great it's fantastic but <laughs> but uh, that's exactly what you would expect right they're, of yeah. course they're never going to tell you right <laughs> yeah exactly like uh, these folks aren't going to tell you anything but uh, yeah it's um <laughs> Uh, they, uh, I, a lot of people do see disclosure as this, like magic pill that is going to solve this UFO mystery once and for all. And like, I, I, I really don't understand like what people think that they have in the government. And it, it, and again, it comes back to all of these stories that just kind of started to come to the forefront. You know, Bob Lazar saying that he worked on a UFO that had been reversed engineered from a crash UFO. He even called it the sport model, you know? Um, and 
a lot of the... <laughs> Is that the two-door or the four-door version? <laughs> Apparently, it was the two-door version. It was a little smaller, but, uh, you know. The two, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, this, like, this like magic pill. And, like, everybody has kind of built onto it. So, like, what's interesting is, like, you can look at a lot of the stuff that came out in the 80s. And you can see how people have built upon it. So, you know, Roswell there have been so many eyewitnesses that have come forward and say, Oh yeah, my parents, you know, uh, were uh, well aware of the event or, you know, my, my dad, you know, did this or that. And like, it's like this like big, huge ball of clay and it's not, you can't really make out exactly what it is, but people keep adding to it. And it's like, unless you can produce the bodies, which is what people are hoping that the government has, you're never going to get like anywhere when it, when it comes to validity of these uh, instances. But like the UFO phenomenon in and of itself is built upon eyewitness testimony and kind of um, little bits of evidence that turn up in, you know, landing trace cases, whether that be, you know, like burnt vegetation or, uh, you know, other effects that it could have in the area. There isn't a lot of, evidence for ufos out there because they they don't often leave evidence so in the end you're left with these anecdotal stories that people will kind of you know bring out and like you can you could read all these stories in many ufo journals and stuff you can read stories about uh encounters with strange humanoid aliens uh, there's plenty of them out there, but um, yeah, just um, this uh, the the magic pill that uh, that is disclosure. The X Files did a great job of really hammering that point home, and I, I and I think like when you look at these episodes, like when you look at like this image of Mulder out on Area 51, like on the base and there's a ufo hovering over him i think that's what a lot of people's views of this topic is that uh the government's got it they've got the goods they're not letting it out we as taxpayers uh deserve to know uh and we're gonna complain about it until we get it so uh, the (laughs) x-files played a huge part in that like to the point where not much has really changed in the 20 plus years since it's been out, like uh, we're, we're almost up to what? 30 years at this point. Um, I think, uh, what is it like 30 years next year? Something like that. But um, I think that's, that sound that sounds right. Yeah. I, yeah. I, it's, it's been wow. There's, there's another concept that, uh, that the X-Files puts forward and um, it's in the, in season two, the first episode, the, of mm-hmm. course, the title of the episode is little green men, right? right. In that episode, uh, we find out there's two craft that were sent into space in uh, 1977 with messages from earth for whoever might find it. Uh, in 1990, the show um, depicts Voyager one passing the orbital plane of Neptune, leaving our solar system. And then later in the episode, uh, Mulder goes to visit an observatory in Puerto Rico where it appears that there was a response to Voyager, even though we don't actually see a UFO in the episode. Uh, there's lights. Mulder sees that he's there while well, he's there in Puerto Rico. It kind of implies that there's UFOs. I think the X-Files did a great job. Uh, I'm sure for budgetary reasons, you don't actually see mm-hmm. things. A lot of times you see the lights coming through the windows and, you know, causing this effect. Uh, and then Mulder sees the, 
well, now at least what we kind of think of the stereotypical shape of an alien. Uh, even though that episode came out in 1994, I think a lot of people today still pull the concept of UFOs and extraterrestrials being tied together and uh, maybe even, you know, the shape of the alien here in this Little Green Men as the, the title of the episode. Do you think the X-Files contributed to people tying all of those things together? Or was that something that was happening even before the show and they were pulling pieces together for that for that concept? I think it definitely uh, is one of those cases in which it amplified it because the the idea of the little green man comes from the gray alien. So the gray turns into the green. But uh, the term little green men is, is interesting. It goes back to 1955 uh, in the uh, Kelly Hopkinsville case uh, in which the Sutton family basically holds off this, uh, you know, these aliens in this like uh, kind of siege on their home. They keep coming back uh, to to the this window and they keep shooting at them and they keep retreating, but they keep coming back. It was a it was a really fascinating case. For terrifying. Nine- yeah, it, it's it's absolutely terrifying. And like there's um, there was one moment when one of the members of the family stepped out onto the front porch and he claimed that one of those aliens kind of just like pulled him by his hair that was like the most aggressive that they got with him but um in the press i'm sorry if i see if i see that happening like i'm gonna go to the front porch and say like <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's probably not, that's just not me that's not what i would do <laughs> it's not the smart response no it's it's not it's not <laughs> adequate like just like don't even engage with them because it's like it, they they just feel like door to door salesmen at this point because they're coming up to your door. You know, I don't know what they want. Maybe, maybe they like their UFO broke down because that the there was a preceding UFO <laughs> event that uh, uh, one of the members uh, of the household at the time had seen this like light streaking across the sky, and uh, it was like less than an hour later when this like this being comes out of like. Um, it, it, it approaches the house like uh, they were first indicated to it because their dog was just like barking like crazy. And this weird being with um, it was short, maybe like no more than four feet tall. Uh, ha- it was glowing. It was a luminescent being had kind of big eyes and it had really big pointy ears. And it was approaching the house and it had its hands up looking like it was about to surrender to these people. And in response, they just started shooting at the thing. Uh, to the point where, like, when they shot, they didn't hit it, and it started to do kind of these, like, backflips, and it started to float backwards, and it led to this, like, hours-long ordeal to the point where I, I think they were, like, fending them off for a couple hours. They got in their vehicle. They went to the police department. Police came out with them. They looked at everything. They saw that there was a lot of bullet holes in, like, the windows and doors and stuff. But uh, they didn't find anything, so police leaves and these aliens come back and they just terrorize these people into the morning. So uh, that's where the term little green men comes from, because in the press, that's what they called them. They uh, it's kind of similar to uh, with Kenneth Arnold. They talk about um, because he had mentioned uh, that they the objects that he saw in 1947 look like saucers skipping across water that uh you know there were flying saucers at that point so 
You know, that was that was what the press had dubbed them. But uh, in late 1987, you start to see kind of like the concept of an, of what aliens could be start to be streamlined. Before that, you read reports of humanoid encounters and they're all varied. They're all very different. Sometimes people see human looking beings. Other times they're short uh, other times really tall, but they all look very different. And then you get to 1987, and that's where the image of the gray comes in. And that image specifically comes from the cover of Whitley Strieber's book, Communion. And that book is all about his uh, lifelong abduction experiences. And it was a book that made a lot of uh, big waves at the time because he was a well-known author and he's coming forward and saying, Hey, I have this lifelong experience of being abducted by aliens. This actually happened to me. And the cover image on there is a uh, painting of this alien by a guy named Ted Seth Jacobs. And it connected with a lot of people. There were a lot of people that came forward after that saying, I had an interaction with this. And like, when you look at that, cover image it is it's uncanny to look at it's it's um it uh that uncanny valley man it just like plays with you because for one it's a really well done painting but two like the the eyes on that being that alien just stare back into your soul uh, and after that <laughs> grays are kind of this big the the predominant aliens that people are interacting with it, it gets streamlined into oh well there's certain types of aliens that people interact with greys they interact with like reptilian looking beings they interact with what they call like the nordics which are like these tall blonde human looking beings and there's mantis beings that um are pretty voyeuristic uh in in certain accounts it's kind of funny but uh uh that image ultimately gets transposed into uh, UFO uh, culture, which kind of gets pushed into the pop culture. And then the X-Files just kind of pushes it out there because uh, one of the best, uh, uh, one of the most iconic episodes, Jose Chung's from outer space, there is that scene toward the end of the episode in which Dana Scully is reading the book. The book of, um, you know, Jose Chung wrote about uh, alien abductions. He took an interest in it. And on the cover of the book, it's a spoof of uh, communion because it's essentially a gray alien smoking a cigarette. So um, that image projected out to people, it definitely helped to become like that main popular image. That's where the little green men really come from, because uh, you know, the grays, they ultimately in pop culture, they're portrayed as green now. Like you see green uh, alien heads like all over the place. So uh, X-Files definitely played a part in pushing that out into the public. Hmm. And it sounds like they're they're pulling from uh, different stories from, from the past in order to tell that story together. You're talking about, I mean, what could we talked about uh, communion before um, mm-hmm. on this show, actually? And so I'm familiar with, with that, the cover image that you're referring to. And I mean, if you see that or even uh, a spoof of it in mm. 
the show. I'm going to have to go back and watch that episode again to, to look for that. Um, but I can only imagine that's going to push that concept even for, uh, further forward. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, and that, and that's the thing is like, it's widely regarded as like probably the best episode of the X-Files ever because, and, and I think what it does is it kind of, um, boils down, uh, all of like UFO culture into one really well done episode. And it also contains an incident in which the, there are, there's a government, um, I, I think it's like the Air Force or something like that that is going out and abducting people. Uh, these are what became known as military abductions, my labs. And in there, in that episode, these abductors get abducted by real aliens. So, you know, it's uh, it's just absolutely fantastic. But like, um, yeah, that it ultimately distills what UFOs and UFO culture is down into one really great episode and i mean to see alex trebek as a man in black is is an experience that is uh you know one of the best experiences of my life if we go back to the um show in season four episode number 17 there's a story that centers around a commercial airliner that has an encounter with a ufo ultimately the encounter with that airliner flight five, four, nine in the show is a tragic one. It causes the plane to crash, kills everyone on board. Um, are there any real reports of UFOs interacting with commercial airliners like we see in that episode? Yeah, there is a lot of uh, cases like that. And the most famous is probably Kenneth Arnold. Um, and they pro- and they, they didn't really interact, but like it was such a close encounter that, uh, uh, you know, it really, it really rattled him at the time, but, um, there is, uh, an incident in 48, it's called the child's witted case. And these two pilots, uh, they're flying their commercial airliner, uh, and they see kind of this, um, they describe it as like a long missile like object, but it like basically flies right next to their plane and then just speeds away. And it, made it got a lot of attention in the press to the to the point where you know it, the people were giving interviews that was uh it was eastern airlines flight 576 so you know they were flying from houston to atlanta and um the funny thing is is like they the, the first thing that they thought was that this was kind of a it was a military vehicle of some kind but um the uh, they were they were flying a DC I think a DC three plane, and it was just odd because it was wingless. But uh, another odd feature is it looked like it had windows on it, so it wasn't necessarily a missile. But uh, this thing was uh, it was Holland, and it uh, it had a lot of fire spewing out of the back allegedly. But um, there are a lot of cases. There's another kind of infamous case from 1986 over Alaska in which a Japan airlines flight interacted. They, um, they ultimately see kind of this, these like two small prelude objects that are kind of floating in midair in front of their plane. And that gives way to an object that they described as a mothership. They, they described this object as like miles wide and just like absolutely huge. Like when you look at sketches of this incident, like, 
there's a tiny plane and then there's this huge UFO. But uh, there are like quite a few incidences in which, uh, you know, civilians, military pilots, they just kind of have these, uh, you know, brief but uh, memorable interactions with them. Um, yeah, they're interesting, especially when you can hear like uh, because you sometimes you'll hear uh, like uh, kind of the uh, recording between um, uh, the tower operators and the uh, the pilots. Uh, we recently covered a case. Uh, a guy, um, got, there was a guy who's flying from Zaywan to Neho of all places, the place where Andy Dufresne ends up in the Shawshank Redemption at the end. Uh, he's stri- he's flying to, uh, I believe, Mexico City, and as he's in the air, there are these three UFOs that uh, appear alongside him. The two, one on each side, and then there's like one kind of in front of him. It ends up like uh, kind of uh, descending underneath his plane. And uh, his first thought is to get out of the way. So he angles the nose of his plane down, ends up hitting one of these objects. At that point, he loses control of his plane. And he's he's trying desperately to regain, you know, the controls and such. And these plane, these objects essentially escort him for a certain period of time before they eventually break off and fly towards a volcano. And he is so frightened by this incident that when he is eventually able to land, he actually has to end up, uh, he ends up like uh, circling the airport like 11 times because his, um, his landing gear, uh, the, the doors to his landing gear were damaged, but he finally got them open. He lands the plane. He jumps out of the plane before the engine even shuts off. And he's just absolutely freaked out. And eventually he ends up having these, it, it, it ends up making the press uh, in 1978. And he has these men in black experiences after that, in which he is kind of harassed by, you know, a few uh, group, groups of people uh, twice. Uh, he, uh, in the first one, he was actually going to make a TV appearance and this car kind of just like uh, cuts him off in the middle of the road. They approach him in his vehicle and they say, you're not going to the studio. You're not going to talk about this. So after that happens, you know, he goes home. Eventually people catch up with him. He tells them what happened and they decide that, no, he's going to, we'll, we'll have a private meeting in a hotel. So he goes and he meets with uh, J. Allen Hynek of all people. He has a, uh, I think like a, an 11 hour meeting with him. It was very long, but uh, they were going to make plans to meet again. And while he was going back up to that hotel room, he encounters another group of men in this lobby that says, you're not going to talk about it. Stop talking about it. So, um, yeah, there's there's a lot of interesting cases between, you know, interactions with pilots and UFOs. You mentioned a a few things in there um, that circle right into my next question. It's in uh, season five, episode 13. And. in that episode, we see a UFO in Kazakhstan in the former Soviet Union. And with the popularity of Hollywood, a lot of movies and TV shows are produced, obviously, in the, in the United States, X-Files included. So it stands to reason that a lot of the UFO reports in the U.S. get a lot more spotlight in pop culture than those outside of the U.S. But you mentioned some like the, you know, the, um, the, some of the flights that you just mentioned were not in the U.S. Do you mm-hmm. think there are more reports 
in the U.S. or is it that incidents like Roswell or you know Kenneth Arnold you were talking about because those get publicized more in things like movies and TV shows like the X Files? Do you think um, that's a reason why they're, for lack of a better term, more popular than the events that we that are outside the U.S.? I think what's interesting, and and I've had uh, guests on, and and we've talked about cases that aren't as well known that should be as well known. A lot of the times that they're not, uh, you know, known far and wide, it's because they weren't printed in English. Uh, and like, mm. the thing is, is like UFOs. There were UFO incidences that predated Kenneth Arnold's sighting in '47. So. Um, there was this phenomenon in 1946 in which uh, uh, countries like Norway, Finland, Sweden, um, some other European countries were seeing these things that they dubbed as ghost rockets. So they were these long objects that would fly really fast. Some of them people claimed to see them enter into bodies of water and stuff like that. Uh, and one of the earliest... Uh, UFO reports that would it, it wouldn't come out until about the 1970s, but uh, there was a guy named Josta Carlson, uh, and he uh, he lived in Sweden, and he had this encounter in the woods with a landed object, and he saw uh, human kind of human looking aliens around it. There was allegedly physical evidence left, uh, including like these two kind of like containers which were used. Uh, I don't remember exactly what they were used for, but um, I think with the way that the popularity of UFOs took off and because of the kind of massive footprint that American pop culture has worldwide, I think it had a definite influence on the cases that really kind of um, went to the forefront and became well-known. So I don't think it's necessarily that there are more, you know, UFO cases in the United States. Maybe, maybe there are, maybe there aren't. But when you read through reports, a lot of the times what you realize is that um, your UFO reports, the only, the only time that you ever see that anybody ever sees a UFO and uh, in, in, is if it, it's reported. Essentially, that's the only way that we know about it in the States. I, I would say that that may be changing because now the investigators that were researching and investigating these cases in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, they're no longer with us. And the main bodies that investigate these cases generally keep the information to themselves. Uh, organizations like MUFON. They're not very public with the information that they have. Um, there's New Fork, uh, which is another uh, outlet that you could report your sightings to. There, the cases aren't really investigated, but they're collected. But though, because those investigators aren't out there, you, you it just seems like there aren't a lot of UFO cases out there. But um, I, I struggle with the idea that you know there are more UFOs in the United States than anything. I, I, there, they have more of a, they've had more of a, you know, public reputation in the United States than I think in most places. Like if you don't read through UFO magazines, UFO journals and read the cases that people are investigating, you wouldn't know that they were happening. Like 
I don't think a lot of people realize how much of a hotspot Brazil is for UFO cases and Argentina. Those those countries had very strange and intense cases to the point where Brazil kind of has this reputation in which UFOs are kind of hostile. They'll um, they've been reported as like, um, you know, harming civilians and stuff. Um I would say like the UK has a very good body of, of casework um, on par, I would say with the States in, in many cases, there were a lot of great investigators that are still doing things over there. But um, I think a lot of it is public perception uh, more than anything. There are always going to be those cases and probably the most well-known cases are always going to be um, American cases. But um, yeah, it, I, I don't think that, UFOs are seen any more here than they are anywhere else. But um, a lot of the times it just comes down to, you know, where can you report it to? And and are those people going to make that information prevalent? Because UFO journals aren't there anymore to publish these reports. Um, MUFON kind of publishes them from time to time. You'll see like a blog post of a case that they think is interesting. But yeah, it's... Um, yeah, I just don't think that I just think that because of the reputation that uh, the U.S. has, that's why uh, it seems like there's just a, a ton of cases here. But I, I definitely think they are ev- everywhere. But um, it's it's interesting to think, too, when it comes to um, Russia and uh, like the Soviet Union they weren't allowed to talk about their UFO cases. There was, um, they, you know, people who had UFO reports were not allowed to um, release them, share them um, until 1989. So once, um, once that happened, you know, you start to see more, you know, like Russian UFO cases, but uh, yeah, I think it's a lot of it definitely has to do with the reputation that America has worldwide and, uh, especially American pop culture. Yeah. There is a, a bit of dialogue in that episode where I was just mentioning a uh, season five, episode 13 that I wanted to ask you about. It's, um, between Mulder and uh, Dr. Verber where Mulder says the conspiracy is not to hide the existence of extraterrestrials, but to make people believe in it so completely that they question nothing. Do you think there's any truth to that idea that the show puts forth? Um, well, if you think about it, the scientific attitude to extraterrestrial life and, in like the, the popular, um, consensus is is like oh there's definitely alien life in the universe we just just don't think it has visited here so i think we are at a point now where we are conditioned to believe that there's definitely extraterrestrial life out there um but i don't think it's uh to that point where it's just this is an average mundane thing you know it's it's um it's no big deal and uh, it, it's it's such a thing that's ingrained in you that um, that you don't question it. But like there are also those people that will, you know, it'll just be like a passing comment or something like that. But um, yeah, I I don't think it's like that. I don't think it's like conditioning like that. I th- because I don't see like the scientific community like conditioning people to you know 
just just make it seem like it's an average everyday run of the mill kind of thing but um yeah it's 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 interesting yeah the way that they've worded it in that because you know it it gets into the idea of like a psyop or something like that in which you know uh people claim that the the government conditions them uh the public to believe in things because uh one of the things that you see now is that uh people will look at a certain thing uh whether that's uh the the 2017 New York Times article with the, you know, the footage and stuff like that is like, oh, we're being conditioned for disclosure. And it's like, no, I don't think so. I think it's just, um, you know, people did some investigating. They found this project, you know, this project is done and over with, but they did find some interesting stuff. And it's always the, those people, they call it quote unquote drip, drip disclosure or soft disclosure, um, and ultimately this conditioning, but I don't think that's a case that people are being conditioned to um, think about aliens or UFOs in a certain way. I, I, you know, I, I don't see that happening. It, it just seems like that seems like very expensive because like there are plenty of people that also say that some of the UFO sightings and even some of the most like sensational UFO sightings were orchestrated by the government. It's like, I don't think the government has that much money, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe they got those reverse engineered UFOs and I'm just, you know, I'm just living in my world where I block all that out. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, it, not to, we're t- talking about the X-Files, but not to go off, you know, um, in, was it uh, Independence Day? It's like, oh, you don't think it costs $20,000 for a hammer yeah. or $10,000 for a toilet seat, do you? Right. <laughs> That's right. where they get the money from. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, we, were, we were talking about uh, Roswell just uh, br- briefly before I mentioned that. And um, there's something else that people are familiar with when it comes to UFO phenomena. It's Area 51. And we see that in the X-Files in Season 6, Episode 4, Mulder visits that top seeker base, Area 51. That episode was released in 1998, and I'm sure a lot has changed since then. So what are the the current theories on Area 51? Is it still synonymous with UFOs as it used to be when the X-Files episode was released? A lot has come out to the point where, you know, the government has officially acknowledged that Area 51 is a thing. But um, Area 51 became, you know, really well known because of Bob Lazar, uh, like we mentioned before. Um, and it, you know, it was dubbed Area 51 by the Atomic Energy Commission uh, because it was part of the Nevada test and training range where um, they dropped nukes out there. Uh, they tested, you know, uh, nuclear weapons and, and such. But um, it's where they actually, uh, because they didn't want anybody going out there, they actually gave this area of land near Groom Lake to Lockheed Martin, basically. And Lockheed Martin, you know, has been at the forefront of, you know, aviation, uh, specifically, you know, things like the SR-71, the B-2 bomber, etc. You know, it's the last place anyone should be looking because nobody should be out there because, you know, radiation and stuff. Um, But uh, that's pretty much where they they worked on, you know, like high-tech planes and and stuff like that but uh um annie jacobson uh wrote a book 
uh, about the base called Area 51, in which, you know, she exposed what Lockheed Martin was doing. And uh, there was actually a couple years ago, there was a great History Channel documentary uh, made about it uh, called the, the Secret in the Sky, The Untold Story of Skunk Works, which is absolutely fantastic. I, you know, I recommend um, uh, any, everybody check it out. I think it's narrated by Dennis Quaid. Uh, but it is, uh, you know, it talks about all the, you know, technological advances that they made with Skunk Works and like all the things that they had to design um, to, you know, make, um, you know, like the U2 spy plane, which is still being used today, I believe, because the the camera on that thing is so amazing. Um, the SR-71, which uh, it's it's frightening to think that there's a plane that leaks gasoline until you get to high altitude when everything gets squished together and, and airtight. So, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty much what we know. Sounds about. like a great design, doesn't it? It, it does. <laughs> and it's, you know, what? It, if you watch that documentary and you see the footage, you see this plane and it's just like leaking all over the runway until it gets up into the air at high altitude. And it's just like, you know everything comes together and uh, eventually they have to meet up with like a uh, refueler in the air to, <laughs> to get their you know uh, their fuel but uh, it, it is an absolutely great documentary and um, Area 51 is a great book uh, so uh, if you're interested in the subject I highly go I highly recommend you go check uh, either one of those out well, you're talking talking about those airplanes, and in that episode, in the in that episode I was talking about with Area 51, uh, there is a UFO that flies over Mulder and and Scully. Mm-hmm. And if you pause the episode as the, as the UFO flies away, to me, it looks a lot like a B two bomber. Yes. Uh, do you yes. think that there's something to the idea that the UFOs, maybe not even just at Area 51, but it's you know, it's actually just military stealth technology? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you know, again, with the, the Paul Benowitz stuff, like when you look at lights in the sky and you don't know what the heck it is, you've never seen anything like that before. It could be anything. And a lot of the times you see people will, you know, go to the idea, hey, this is aliens or something like that. But uh, yeah, like uh, I, I definitely think that a lot of mistaken technology a lot of uh, lights in the sky are mistaken technology. I I remember um, in that documentary they talked about how like there were reports in I think like the 1950s or something like that where people were seeing basically like flying crosses in the sky and they basically said yeah that that was the U2 spy plane. <laughs> they were seeing it from really high up, but. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I, de- I definitely believe that there are some like secret military technology that is mistaken for UFOs. Uh, after 13 years, the X-Files came back in 2016 with season 10. In the first episode, they recreated the Roswell crash from 1947. Based on what we know of that incident, how well do you think the X-Files did recreating that? This is a very sensational version of what happened at Roswell. You know, like (laughs) in reality, the government's response to Roswell was very slow. It actually took them four to five days to get out there. Uh, And it actually took, you know, Mac Brazel discovering all of this debris on the ranch that he was working at to collect it. And 
even when it comes to like the Kecksburg crash, it, they, their response was delayed a little bit. But, um, you know, it's uh, it's it's interesting to watch this very sensationalized version because like there were no um, reports of uh, aliens on the Foster Ranch or um, the supposed alien bodies were found in different spots. And like, the thing is, is like the, the narrative with Roswell's changed so many times over the years. So it be when it first began and when there was, you know, discussion about bodies, which largely relates to a guy named Barney Barnett, who claimed that in an area called the plains of St. Augustine, he had come across the crashed UFO in 1947 uh, I think like somewhere around uh, July, early July. And he saw alien bodies. Uh, he claimed that there was a group of archaeology students that had also seen it that had come across the crash site. But when investigators went to track him down, he was he had passed away. But the thing was, is he kept telling people about these aliens that he that he saw. So like all of these people had secondhand stories of Barney Barnett saying, Hey, I I saw these alien bodies, but then the story morphed to the bodies being found like, like maybe a mile or so away from the foster ranch recovered by the government. There was even one time when it's, when they suggested that maybe it was two UFOs that had actually crashed into each other or, or, Maybe this UFO was um, hit by lightning, but uh, y- yeah, like uh, it, <laughs> it wasn't um, it wasn't as sensational like as as this. Like it, this th- this was definitely weird. Like um, they they went and they kind of ran with it, but um, I to be honest, I I was not a big fan of season ten because it was it kind of veered full blown into con- like following like the conspiracies as far as you could go, like, like modern conspiracies, which, you know, when you're talking about UFOs and it's, it's kind of this like cheeky, funny thing, uh, you know, in like the nineties and stuff, it's like, yeah, I-, I dig that. It's kind of a thing, but like what it's um, the way that it's portrayed in season 10, I'm not, <laughs> not a huge fan of it, but uh, yeah, I don't, th- I do not like this <laughs> depiction of Roswell in, in that episode. <laughs> Well, let's say let's say you were the showrunner for a reboot of the X Files. What would be the first case that you would cover? Um, it's that's kind of tough, uh, because like you know they they can pick and uh, pull from whatever they want. They can influence anything that uh, that they ever did and like you can see certain like real life or or like like events that are alleged to have happened um like in season six episode four for instance uh there's shades of the philadelphia experiment in there um you know this alleged event in 1943 in which the government attempted to turn a, a um a destroyer invisible and allegedly it all went wrong and it caused people to kind of fuse to the ship. If there's anything that I would love to see the X-Files do is kind of like um, a comedic episode, a take on like Jeff, the talking mongoose would be absolutely hilarious. I'd love to see an episode influenced on Jeff, the talking mongoose, because it's such a strange story 
in a strange isolated place in the Isle of Man. Uh, it's, you know, the story of a, a, a quote unquote mongoose that, uh, you know, lived in this family's house, talked to the family. There was like poltergeist like phenomenon that took place, um, in their, um, in their home and stuff, but it would be absolute comedy gold. Jeff, the talking mongoose. If, if X files, you know, ever came back, ever did anything, uh, that, that would be like the ultimate thing I'd want to see. I, I would watch that. Yeah. <laughs> That's for sure. Right. <laughs> well, thank you so much for coming on to chat about the X files. I'm a huge fan of your podcast and I, I love how you cover some obscure cases so well. And so my last question is kind of a two parter. Uh, one, What's one of your favorite stories that you've covered? And two, can you let listeners know where they can find your show? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you can find the show, Our Strange Skies, pretty much anywhere that you find podcasts. Uh, my One of my absolute um, favorite episodes, I recently had on our good buddy Sam Fredrickson from the Not Alone podcast. And we talked about the story of this alien human hybrid that allegedly had uh moved into this college dorm room with this girl and uh she was blind so she wasn't totally um you know open she didn't know exactly what was going on but she claimed to have had this alien human hybrid as a as a roommate and like the story gets really emotional at points and sam's the perfect guest for that so uh it's our uh rachel's eyes episode so uh if you want a good introduction to what we do at the our strange skies podcast go check out that episode it's great Nice. I'll make sure to include a link to that one in the show notes for this episode. Thank you again so much for your time, Rob. Thank you, Dan. This episode of Based on a True Story was produced by me, Dan LeFebvre. I'd like to thank Rob Christofferson once again for sharing his knowledge about the true stories that inspired The X-Files. If you want to learn more about the world of UFOs, I would highly recommend you follow Rob's podcast called Our Strange Skies. It's an amazing treasure trove of UFO reports and stories. As always, you can find links to Rob's podcast in the show notes for this episode, as well as on the show's home on the web, based on a true story, podcast.com. Okay, now it's time for the answer to our two truths and a lie game from the beginning of the episode. And as a refresher, here are the two truths and one lie. Number one, the idea of Area 51 being a top secret base came from the X-Files TV show. Number two, there are real reports of commercial airliners encountering UFOs like we see in the X-Files. Number three, the U.S. government took a few days to respond to the famous Roswell crash of 1947. Did you find out which one is a lie? Let's... Do them in a reverse order and start with number three. The U.S. government took a few days to respond to the famous Roswell crash of 1947. That is true. Rob pointed out that the way we see the Roswell incident happening in the X-Files was a lot more sensational than what really happened. It actually took four or five days for the government to respond. That brings us to number two. There are real reports of commercial airliners encountering UFOs like we see in the X-Files. That is also true. One of the stories that Rob told us was from 1948, and it's called the Charles Witted case, when two commercial pilots saw a UFO fly next to their airplane before speeding away. 
That means number one is the lie. The idea of Area 51 being a top secret base came from the X-Files TV show. As we learned from Rob, the U.S. government has officially acknowledged Area 51 as a real place. The name actually comes from the Atomic Energy Commission as part of the Nevada Test and Training Range, where they tested nuclear weapons. And it's been a place where top secret research for spy planes and other high-tech aviation has been done over the years. So it is not a fictional place made up for the X-Files. But is it a place tied to UFOs like we see in the show? (laughs) Well, that's the unknown. If you enjoyed today's episode, you can help support the next episode and get ad-free versions of the show over at basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Once again, that's basedonatruestorypodcast.com slash support. Until next time, thanks so much for listening, and I'll chat with you again really soon.